You'll know that we're studying through the book of Hebrews now, and we're going to continue that study. But if you were here last week, you know that we decided, or at least I decided, and you followed along because you came back, to do a mini-series within the book of Hebrews where we'll take these three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10 of this book, and we're going to try and think through why Jesus, when he came, and what he taught and what he did, put an end to religion. And that this little mini-series of three teachings from chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're going to look at three themes from the early Christians and what they believed that Jesus accomplished. And so last week we saw that he put an end to the temple. There's no need for temples anymore. So if you're thinking this church is some sort of holy place, it's not. It's just a building, and we appreciate it, and it's helpful. But church buildings and cathedrals or any other sort of man-made place here on earth is, is not the temple. Jesus Christ's body is the temple. This week we're going to see how Jesus' blood put an end to all sacrifices that try and bridge the gap between God and man. And the next week we'll see how by doing all of these things, putting an end to the temple, putting an end to the sacrifices, he, he actually creates a whole new covenant, a whole new law. And the old law is now abolished, obsolete, it's done away with, and the new law of Jesus and his blood is how we should live and be governed. Now, any, just in case any of you are thinking, but wait, the end of religion? Christianity's a religion. You know, like, what are you talking about that Jesus put an end to religion? He started a new one, you might say. What do I mean by this? What do I mean that Jesus put an end to religion? And so, in case any of you are trying to figure out what we're saying here, it's that Jesus isn't putting away religion like you and I define it today. Rather, Jesus is putting an end to a religion the way they would have defined and thought of it in his day. So, although I think we can make arguments that Christianity is so ridiculously different in many good ways than all the other world religions, compare and contrast, and so in that sense, it's really not like any of the other world religions. But generally speaking, it's probably not helpful to go around and, you know, correct everybody when they say, oh, Christianity, I, I hate religion, and organized religion. Well, like, guys, we are an organized religion. It's okay if people say that we don't need to be the religion police and correct everybody. No, Jesus put an end to religion. Now, provocatively, you could use that in a conversation to help make the gospel clear. That sounds good, but I'm not arguing that we redefine religion altogether in the 21st century. What I am arguing is that in the first century, the day of Jesus and his followers, the early church when it got started, it was so radically different than what they thought of religion that they were called atheists and were killed and persecuted for their faith, for their teaching, for their beliefs. For example, I read a book this summer, and the whole book was about the thoughts, beliefs, values, and systems of thought for all of the different kinds of people that interacted with the New Testament. It's a rather long, lengthy, scholarly book, and at one point, I came across this section that makes this point quite well. In many ways, early Christianity appears to us in the present 21st century to be just another religion. But we must remember that within the first century categories, it did not seem like just another religion. 
the early Christians were dubbed atheists, in part because they offered no animal sacrifices. And then what they did do as they gathered together did not look like the religious practices of their day. As a result, what really stuck out to those who were observing and looking in on early Christianity was not its religious practices at all, but rather its total way of life. Part of me is tempted to just kind of do a little parentheses on the beauty of this idea that the early Christians, even in the book of Acts, were called the way because they were not known for what they did, but who they were being in Jesus. But that's not what we're going to be preaching today. It's not the focus of our text. The focus of our text is that line he said, they were dubbed atheists in part because they offered no animal sacrifices. You see, Christians were called atheists because they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a priest, and they didn't have animal sacrifices that were being regularly offered. They gathered together in homes they ate meals together. They just taught like I'm teaching you the Bible and scriptures and the Old Testament and different portions of teaching that were around available to them. So it didn't look like any of the other religions or gatherings of worship that they would have seen. And in our 21st century modern world, who sometimes loves animals more than human beings, we don't think that it's normal for people to offer animal sacrifices. So this is strange to us. I mean, if someone were to offer an animal sacrifice today, you would think they're weird. Get away from me, weirdo. You'd probably be thrown in jail, or at least people would be crying like, terrible animal killer, you know? But in the days that the Bible was written, no sacrifices of animals basically meant no religion, no belief in a god or deity. And this is the big reason why we see one book in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, explain to Christians that if you go around and teach this kind of stuff, it's going to be really hard for Jews to understand what you're saying. It's going to be a stumbling block. And then if you start teaching to the Greeks and the Romans, they're going to call you a fool. This is what Paul said to a group of people in Corinth. Teach this message that there's no more animal sacrifices. You don't need to make sacrifices to God. Jesus paid it all. You say that, you will be called a fool. It's just a, they don't have categories for this. That's not anywhere along their spectrum of what worshiping God would have been. And what we see is they not only taught those things, but were willing to endure suffering for teaching them. Friends, this is one of the reasons why we should consider the claims of Christianity and why it's true. How can you take hundreds upon thousands of Jewish people, many of them Jewish, many of them non-Jews, and totally upside down flip their whole world and customs and traditions. Like, how crazy are religious people in terms of their being unwilling to change? You guys ever notice that? I mean, a lot of you have been in church before. Do church people like change? We could do something for six months, change it up. You're like, hey, hold on, what are you doing with the church, Pastor Phil? Like, we're, we're religious people. We don't like change. Can you imagine the traditions of thousands of years being passed down and then suddenly some of them stop happening for hundreds upon thousands of people? And not just that they changed their traditions, but that they died for them. They died for these new traditions and new beliefs. This is exactly what we find happening here in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, we see a clear reference in chapter 10 that they are suffering for their switch from what seems to be Judaism to Christianity. 
They have endured a hard suffering, he says. Why? Why in the world would anybody endure suffering like this? Willingly. I mean, friends, think about your normal impulses for comfort. Anything that's uncomfortable, get it away, you know? Anything we can do to maintain a sense of cool temperature. If it gets too hot, then we don't like it. If it gets too cold, then we don't like it. If this is aching, then we take medicine. I mean, we are just consumed with that in our everyday lives. Comfort, comfort. Who in their right mind would willingly choose discomfort for a belief like this? Only people who are convinced it's true. Here are three things we find from the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, 9, and 10, that we feel are true, that early Christians believed that led to these kind of suffering, persecution, difficulty, being called fools. Three things. First, God is holy, we are sinful, and the blood of animals is not enough. That's, that's the first sentence. These three chapters teach us first that there is a holy God, we are sinful people, and the blood of animals is not enough. Look with me in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. We're in a section of this book, and the the argument and the flow of it, as you've been following along from the previous weeks, is that the author's trying to make the point that Jesus is our high priest. And so now with that in mind, see what he's saying about that in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which where the lamps stand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. This is what I've referred to in previous weeks as the holy of holies. It has the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section and they perform their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. One of the main things you should be seeing from this passage of Scripture is that this setup of the earthly temple was to help you understand that God is holy, that we are sinful. In verse 1, you see that this is called a place of holiness. In verse 2, you see that the first section of the temple was called a holy place, and that the verse 3 says the second section was called the most holy place. Are you seeing a pattern? It's holy. It's a holy tent. It's a holy place, and then where God's presence is, is holy, holy. 
it says that the first section, priests could go in regularly all throughout the year to make sacrifices and be cleansed. But the Holy of Holies, that was only once a year. And never, never could he go in unless he had blood for himself and for the sins of the people. And it says here, unintentional sins, because it's making a distinction that you find in the Old Testament law between high-handed, defiant rebellion against God's sins and normal, everyday kind of sins that we are repentant of. In verse 8, the point, I think, for all of these previous verses is made quite plain. Look at verse 8. By this, by all of verses 1 through 7, the Holy Spirit is teaching us something. That the holy place, the holy of holies, it is not open for us. As long as the first section is standing and the temple is around, then God's holy presence is not available to sinful people like us. In verse 9, you see a little parentheses and the ESV says it's symbolic for the present age. That I think just simply means it's symbolic for the present first covenant age. So what we were taught by the temple in the first covenant of the Old Testament. So Old Testament times, the temple taught us God is holy, man is sinful. But notice what he says after this. In verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. But there's a problem with them. They can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. All they do in verse 10 is deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations, that are for the body, for the external physical body. And these were imposed until the time of the Reformation. And this is, I think, a reference to the second covenant. So you have the present age, the Old Testament times, and then the New Testament times is referred to as the Reformation. So here in this section, this is just one excerpt that we could look at, but all through chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're supposed to see that animal sacrifices were an illustration, like a little picture Not the real thing. And they were never meant to fully bridge the gap between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. There's this great divide. And every single world religion or religious philosophy or ideology, as we said last week, believes in some sort of higher power and some sort of gap between man and God. And if you think that animal sacrifices can bridge that gap, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, no, there's not a chance. Look over in chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. You'll see the exact same point being made about the insufficiency of these temple sacrifices. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's what we just heard earlier in chapter 9. But look at his reasoning, his logic here. He's going to give you a new argument, same point. Verse 2, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If they worked, then there would not be continual sacrifices year after year. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year as they continue to get offered. Verse 4, and here's as clear as it could be. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for these sacrifices to bridge the gap between God and man. And then look at the way he describes Jesus Christ's perspective of these sacrifices as he quotes Psalm 40. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Sacrifices and offerings. This is, this is not what God ultimately desired. This was not his big plan for saving and forgiving man's sin. He doesn't take pleasure in these, oh yeah, that, that will bridge the gap. That works. Those animals, that, that'll get it done. No, 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 no. You're missing it. It was just an illustration. It was just helping teach people until the final true sacrifice came. This section is trying to hammer this point. Sins cannot be washed away by animal sacrifices or any sacrifice that is brought by a human. Because God is holy, this means that he is set apart. He is pure. I want us to think here when we consider the idea of God's holiness, his cleanliness, the image of cleanness, because we see here these animal sacrifices, all they could do was ritually make someone clean so that just for a moment they could stand in the presence of a holy God. Just for a moment, though. Not regularly, not repeatedly, just one day out of the year, and only one guy. And it could cleanse people that were in the the, the group of the Israelite community if somebody had some sort of disease. Maybe they, they touched a dead animal, or maybe they had some sort of fluid, or cut, or discharge, or pus, or maybe they had feces on them. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff. Like, if you're like, that's gross, and what, like, read Leviticus. I, I know it's not a, a fun read, but that's the sort of things it details, is that if you become unclean in these ways, then you can make these animal sacrifices, and then you'll be purified, and washed, and cleansed, and then now you can still interact with the people in the community. You're not contagious. If you still remain in this state of uncleanliness and you got all this filth and dirt and junk all over you, well, then you need to be separated and, and kind of put in some kind of special isolation to make sure you don't contaminate the rest of the community and then eventually the priests and the Holy Holy, then we lose the whole presence of God altogether. All of this is just illustrations, physical illustrations of a deeper spiritual ultimate reality. I mean, just consider for a second have you ever been around something that disgusted you? Like the smell of it. We've got these skunks around my house, and it's getting a really annoying. Like every once in a while, we're trying to get ready for bed, and it's just repulsive and how strong the odor is. I, I don't want you to think on it for long, and we get messes around here, but like conjure up the idea of something just utterly repulsive. A smell, a sight. Something that you say, oh, no, I don't want to see it. Friends, this is exactly the picture the Old Testament sacrifices are painting for us. God is so clean that when you're like in your Sunday best, you're, you're clean as clean could be. You just washed up and you're pressed your clothes and everything is dry cleaned and everything is perfect. Then you don't, you don't play in mud, right? You stay away from anything that might make you dirty. I've noticed in our house, we've, we've recently had some new furniture put in our living room, and, and so now it's like, well, it's clean. Let's keep it clean, you know? And so dirty kids and their messy hands, like, you got to wash your hands. Like, there's just all these sort of things that we do when we want to keep something clean, right? That's the picture here, except that's just a physical picture. 
And it's times by a thousand and a million or infinitely greater picture is the holy God sees not just external uncleanliness. And it's not just because we need to like have good health code and you know, keep the germs away, although that was a benefit for these Israelite people. The main point, the writer of Hebrews says, is to remind them of their sin and help them see that God is so infinitely holy that if you were to walk into his presence, he would be so disgusted. So stinks. Got pus on you. Ew, ew. That's what your sin looks like to God. It's repulsive. Because he is so infinitely clean and you're so utterly dirty. We need to be cleansed. But external cleansing of our filth is not going to get the job done. What we need cleansed from is our guilt and our sin and the issues in our heart. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. It can't clean what? It could do something. It had a purpose. It was teaching them something, and it would cleanse them physically, externally. But in verse 9, it says it cannot cleanse their conscience. It cannot perfect their conscience. Every single year, if you had a good believing Jew, they would bring all their sins before the priest. He would have them sacrificed on top of an animal. They'd place their hands on the animal to kind of say their, their sin, their guilt, their guilty conscience is being transferred onto this animal. That animal would be split, slit its throat, it'd be killed, and then they'd splatter the blood all over. This is the picture of the year, yearly day of atonement. But how long would that clear conscience last? Ten minutes? An hour? Maybe one day. Maybe they go a whole day without any sin or issues that they need to now be asked for forgiveness again. Do you, do you see the point he's making about the repeated nature of these sacrifices? If they can only externally cleanse people and only forgive them up to that point. I mean, imagine today's the Day of Atonement. And today, all of us were to come together and we'd, we'd lay down our sacrifices before the Lord and then be like, we're forgiven. We feel free. We're, we're joyful. We're excited. God's forgiven us. He's accepted our sacrifice. The next day, you talk awful to your spouse. You, you do something and you steal. I, any sin, you're now defiled again. You were clean. And then one day later, two days later, a week later, now your conscience is guilty again. And guess what? You have to live with that heavy burden of that conscience for the next year. Because you can't make another sacrifice of sin that will atone for your sin until the next year, Day of Atonement. You see how this works? It lasts but for so long. If it actually took away their guilty conscience and perfected them forever and took away their sin once and for all, well, then they wouldn't offer another one the next year. The first one was enough. This is the argument he's making. These animal sacrifices cannot bridge the gap and they don't work for that ultimate purpose. And that's the one we really need. If you're not seeing yourself as filthy and in need of something more than just some sort of human sacrifice, or not human, but a human offering before God or an animal sacrifice or a gift to bring to God, you need something more, something bigger or better, 
then it's because you have failed to see the great holiness of God. Friends, this is where everything continues to come back to again and again. If you think I've been like a little over the top here, you know, trying to wake you up a little bit and talk about pus and ugly, gross things, I haven't even scratched the surface of the filth that we have before a God who is infinitely holy. Imagine the cleanliness of a perfectly humble, selfless, just, righteous, never once sinned person and then put you next to it. I mean, even when somebody is just generally, generally kind of a good moral person, you're kind of like, I don't like being around them. They're too good for me, you know? I feel bad about myself when I'm around them. How much more if you were in front of God's perfect, holy character? I think one thing we should learn as a church is that our church services should be done in such a way that we understand that God in the Old Testament has given regulations for how he's to be worshipped because he's a holy God. And just because Jesus comes and does away with the law, as we'll look at next week, this doesn't mean that we should now like, well, we're free. Let's just do whatever. Let's have fun. Let's party. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be joyful and celebrate and even rest in the goodness of what Jesus has done. But the God of the Old Testament who is holy and just is still the God of the New Testament. Friends, I think one of the worst things that we could have is for us to turn this into some big entertainment show. Embassy Church wants to be clear that that may not be the most helpful thing for you. For you to understand the weight and the seriousness of this. Do you, do you read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 and think, yeah, this is kind of just a flippant thing. You know, God just whoosh, takes care of the sin, deals with it. There's a, a weight and a gravity to what's happening here. This is one of the reasons why we confess our sins on a regular basis publicly. Not individual sins like, hey guys, last week I did this sin over here and I just want to let everybody know, but generally, corporately, say, God, these are the kind of people we are and we do not deserve to stand before your presence. We don't deserve to sing these songs right now and we deserve your judgment. We want to be honest about that on a regular basis as a church, that God is holy, that we are sinful, and there's nothing that we can do to wash away our sins. Isn't that how the song goes? What can wash away our sins? Nothing. Nothing can. Nothing you can do can wash away your sins. No animal sacrifice, no blood. It, it's impossible. You need something much, much better. The blood of Jesus. Which brings us to our second truth. At this point, I wonder if some of us might think, man, this God, I don't know if he sounds so good. I mean, he just sounds so like, self-righteously uptight about how clean he is and like, you guys need to stay away. I think that's a, 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 maybe a, a right thing for you to kind of worry about. Like, is, is that what God's like? Because there's a sense to which he is holy and you are not. And you can't be in his presence. He's too clean for your dirty filth. But the good thing is, is that this isn't the last thing we hear and learn about God. God is not just holy and we're sinful. God, secondly, is merciful. He wants to forgive us, but this forgiveness will require suffering. God is not so stuck up with himself that he will not just stay in heaven and say, you dirty people, figure out what you're going to do, and maybe I'll be pleased with your efforts. No, there is a God in heaven who 
desperately, compassionately wants to forgive our sins. But this forgiveness requires suffering. Look at chapter 9, verse 22. One powerfully helpful truth. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It wasn't until I read something from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I started to understand how forgiveness works and then how then the necessity of the cross of Christ must pay for our forgiveness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, was a German in the last, what, century, 100 years. He was fighting against the Germans in terms of wanting to stop the killing of Jews during the Holocaust. And he was a Christian. He preached and taught all kinds of wonderful things as a Christian to help brothers and sisters understand the difference between the sort of Christianity of the German Nazi regime and the true biblical Christianity. At one point, he talks about forgiveness in his book, Cost of Discipleship. And he says, My brothers, the burden which I must bear is not only his outward lot, his natural characteristics and gifts, but the burden we must bear is each other's sins. And the only way to bear that sin is by forgiving it in the power of the cross, which now we share. Forgiveness is Christ-like suffering, which it is the Christian's duty to bear in living out what Jesus has done for him. Now, I want to make sure we're all understanding what Bonhoeffer is saying here. When someone wrongs you, there is now a sense that a debt has occurred. A penalty has been needing, a penalty is needing to be paid. So let's just take, for example, uh, I heard the illustration of this from Tim Keller's book in A Reason for God. Let's say you've got a, a nice white picket fence all around your house and somebody crashes into your fence and they break down your mailbox and they've done damage to your facility, your home, your property. That's the, that's the offense that has now happened. Now there's two options. You can make them fix it, pay for it, and put the fence back up themselves or give you the money to get it done. Or, second, you can forgive them, which means you then need to pay for the new fence and bear the cost of putting it back together all on your own and not require anything from them. It's kind of a basic common understanding. That's, that's what forgiveness is, is. It's a transaction. There's something that has been done and it must now be paid for. Now that's like with property, but this is true now even of emotional debt and scars that people do against us. You know, the, the ways that we've been hurt as we grew up in our childhood and somebody abandoned us or left us or said something to us and now there's this debt. And we can either pay them back by getting angry with them or I'll show you. And, and so now we're going to make them feel our wrath and our indignation for the offense that they've done against us. Or we can forgive them and treat them as if it never happened. Those are the two options. Every time an offense happens, those are the two options. Either make them suffer and pay it back or forgive them. And this, my friends, is the same thing with God's forgiveness. Because sin is such a serious offense against the holy God, this means that forgiveness will only happen if God himself 
bears the cost and absorbs the wrath. Here's God, holy, clean, pure. We have horrifically sinned against him, disrespected him, spit in his face. So he can do two things. One, smash us and say, you're going to pay for that. Or he can forgive us. But if he forgives us, he must bear the cost himself. And friends, the good news of Christianity is that God determined to forgive us in just that way. He came down from heaven in the person, in flesh, in human history. And he did not inflict pain on anyone else or offer any animal sacrifices to pay for our sins. He offered his own blood. Read chapter 9, verse 11 and 2. Follow along. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, and thus securing for us an eternal redemption. In order to really please God's infinite holiness, then you need a really good sacrifice. It makes sense, doesn't it? God's so holy, the distance is so great, animals isn't getting the job done, they're just a picture and illustration. What you need is a very big sacrifice, a long, high, big bridge to reach the infinite gap between God and man. And in chapter 9, verse 22 through 26, we see that indeed we have a better sacrifice. For there is, no shedding, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Look what verse 23 then says. So thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. See what he's saying here? It was necessary for the copies, the earthly tent, to be purified with animals. That's fine. That's necessary. There's some sort of sacrifice that needs made. But that's not going to get the job done. In order to get the job done, you need a better sacrifice than these. And verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places with, made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, and now appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for he would have to... For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Himself. God is not so clean that he will not get himself dirty with our sin. He comes down, down, down into our mess. And he sits on that cross and hangs and looks as filthy as you could imagine. He becomes sin in that moment. Hebrews 13 is going to say he is outside the camp, bringing in this image and illustration that he is so filthy he shouldn't even be around the people. He's so unclean. He suffered outside the camp, on the cross, hung, was spit on by humans, punched and bruised and bled and died, and he was so unclean even though he never deserved it. Friends, once and for all, this better sacrifice, Jesus Christ, did this for you. 
and now therefore unlocks the wonderful power for you to forgive others today. How can you forgive someone that's sinned against you so terribly? Have you ever struggled with forgiveness? I mean, imagine something awful. Like not just, well, you know, they hit my fence. <laughs> like they murdered somebody that you love. They raped your spouse. You, I mean, horrific things. How do Christians forgive people like this? There's so many wonderful testimonies and stories of Christians in the face of awful suffering like this, looking at the people that did these things and say, I forgive you. How do they do this? Ephesians tells us that we should forgive one another because Christ has forgiven us. We do not have a God who demands the blood of us or of anything else. We have a God who offers his own blood. This is the opposite of religion. And it is the power for you and I to forgive others. Who do you need to forgive today? I understand that the nature of forgiveness means that you will now suffer for forgiving. It would be easy or the natural inclination of our heart to, to pay them back for it. Do something that will cause them pain for the suffering they've caused you. But true Christianity is a religion, a non-religion of forgiveness, where we forgive one another. Our church is not a perfect church. I hope we're all clear on this. Embassy Church, I love it. I love you all. It's been a fantastic couple years. I think there's wonderful things happening all around us. But we will sin against one another all the time until Christ returns. How will this church respond in the face of sinning against one another? Will you be part of the people that just run away and say, look, man, I'm done with this church. I'm going to another one. There's so many other options around here. Let's leave. Not deal with the issue. Not receive or give forgiveness. That's what people do too often in church today. And this is so anti-Christian. We should forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. And I promise you, you will never bear the suffering and the weight and the hurt when you receive or when you extend forgiveness that, that Jesus has extended to you. I mean, just consider the, the comparison here. Whatever offense has done against you, no matter how great, it does not compare with the offense that we have done against God and he has still forgiven us. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is how the gospel changes our hearts, softens them, melts them. When we see Jesus in this way forgiving us in all of our filth and, and taking that on himself, and we see him clothing us with perfect, clean, righteous clothes, we can now forgive others. The fact that Jesus had to die should humble us and not be proud and say, no, I won't forgive people. The fact that Jesus has gladly died for us should assure us that we should not be afraid. Well, God, I pray that you'd make us a church, right? God, make us a church this way. That we are quick to forgive. Third and final thing. We've seen that God is holy, that we are unclean, that animals don't get the job done. We've seen that God is merciful and he wants to forgive and that that forgiveness will require his suffering. Therefore, the cross makes sense. It's actually the only option if, if, if there's a God who's going to forgive us for the sins we've committed against him. 
God himself will have to bear that judgment on himself, offer his own blood, and that's exactly what he does. Thirdly, lastly, God is just. We should be judged, but Jesus Christ's blood is sufficient. Chapter 9, verse 13 and 14 gives an argument that says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer can sanctify and purify our external flesh, if the animal sacrifices could do all that, well then how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If those animal sacrifices could clean the physical, external rituals and rites, then Jesus Christ's blood is ten times, a hundred times greater, more powerful to clean your conscience. Purify your conscience so that when you hear the good news of the gospel preached to you, you don't have to wait till next Sunday to receive forgiveness of sins again. Guess what? This afternoon, you fail and fall down and fall short in sin preach the gospel to yourself again, and the blood is still powerful. Sin sometime this week, do something, you're like, why in the world did I do that? Now i got to wait till church, till I get some sort of absolution from the priest. No, nope, that's not how it works. Once and for all, the blood has power, and it has power forever. It never loses its power, we sing, until we're saved to sin no more when Jesus returns. But here's the thing I want you to think about in terms of how this truth does away with religion forever. In verse 14, it says that we're purified our conscience from what? And then there's this very interesting, unique phrase, dead works, which only appears here and one other place in the book of Hebrews. We are purified from dead works. I spent a good deal of time trying to make sure that I wasn't in error in this way. It's it's either taken the works that lead to death, which are sins, but I think there's greater arguments to be made, which I'm not going to spend the next hour going into, but the arguments to be made that these dead works, in the context of these religious rites and, sedu- and um, assemblies and different things, these dead works are the dead works of the sacrifices or the rituals that, that somebody would offer before God. Because the contrast here is from dead works to the living God. Purify our conscience from the dead works so that we can serve. And then this word serve is the word used for priests who would serve in the temple. We can now be servants who serve God, the living God, and offer our whole bodies as a spiritual sacrifice to God because there's no more sacrifice of sins or blood that is needed. Here's the point. Religious people feel guilty for their sins. Like, it's pretty easy to go around the whole world and tell people, have you, have you done anything wrong? You ever feel guilty for something that you've done? And everybody agrees, yeah, nobody's perfect. So, that's why there's all kinds of religions in the world. Because people are trying to figure out, what do I do with this dirty conscience? What do I do with this guilt? I need to do something with it. Maybe I give money, maybe I do good deeds. Maybe I offer animal sacrifices. And there we have a whole gamut of religious activities to try and appease the guilt and the burden that we bear. 
But Christian people don't just repent of the sin and the guilt that they have. Christian people repent of their good deeds too because they're filthy rags before a holy God. If you understand that your efforts to be righteous before God are just more filth before the holy, clean God, filthy rags, then you understand you need to repent both of your sins and your attempts to try and make God happy and pleased with you. That, that's like cutting out every religion in the world, don't you see? If this is true, then, that we should have our consciences purified, that we don't have guilt, and that we don't need to try and make attempts to please God because God is pleased with Jesus, then you can be in his presence. You can serve the living God with a clean conscience, and you don't need to make any efforts to please him in that way. The whole week as I was preparing for this message, I had this one song stuck in my head. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be free from your passions and prides? There's power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? There's power, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? Would you live daily his praises to sing? There is wonder-working power in the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb. Friend, do you know that power? Do you know the precious blood of Jesus can clean your conscience and you can feel guilt-free and then you can forgive others and you can serve the living God and not feel like it's because I owe God something but because he paid a debt I could never pay. Friends, let's celebrate the power in Jesus' blood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the good gift of your blood that we do not deserve. We are sinful, unclean, unholy people. We have offended you, and we deserve to pay it ourselves with our own blood. So what could we offer now but just amazing thanks? Thank you, God. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that brings forgiveness of sins. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.